Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what I learned on the podcast today. Why is it that the judge in the case of the Toronto van attack where 10 people died has chosen not to use the name of the accused and now convicted? We'll talk about NCR. What does not criminally responsible actually mean? A criminal defense lawyer will join me on that. And we will talk about raccoons. I launch my single-issue campaign to become the next mayor of Toronto based on my raccoon policy. Let's get to it. Ranuka Amarasing, 45. Andrea Braddon, 33. Geraldine Brady, 83. Sohee Chung, 22. Anne-Marie Damico, 30. Betty Forsyth, 94. Eddie Kang, 45. Ji Hun Kim, 22. Munir Najjar, 85. Dorothy Sewell, 80. Those are the names of the 10 victims killed by a man seeking fame and notoriety who knew what he was doing and knew it was wrong. That is where today's focus must be on the names I just read and on the 16 others injured on April 23rd, 2018. Why did they have to die? Why were lives shattered, families torn apart? In finding that man guilty on all counts, Justice Anne Molloy writes, I am acutely aware of all of this attention and media coverage is exactly what this man sought from the start. Outside of court, family members spoke. This is Nick Demico. I hope that the, that the media can kind of take her wishes to heart and really try and, and see if we can change the culture of, of how, we, how we acknowledge people that do things of this nature. And I haven't used the name of the perpetrator since it happened for that reason. We can, we can get fame in positive ways. We don't need to go down that road. In her decision, in her 68-page decision, the justice does not name that man. To talk more about the decision and what's being said outside of court, Catherine McDonald is our global news crime reporter, has covered this since the beginning. Catherine, welcome. A powerful day, Catherine. Um, what have you heard first from uh, family and from the surviving victims? And also, what have we heard from defense? You know what? This is a huge relief to all the victims, uh, the survivors, the families of those who, who died in this terrible attack. 
Um, as we heard from Nick D'Amico, who was just talking about, you know, I asked him, about why, why not? What did you think about the judge not naming the perpetrator? He just said, I feel like I can breathe for the first time in three years because they've, they, they, you know, this, this was one of those things where they, they needed the ability to be able to move on. Of course, you know, there's never going to be justice. Their, their, their loved one is gone. But, um, you know, this man uh, who had this defense of NCR because of autism, it, it, it outraged that community. It also uh, upset people in that it seemed, you know, so obvious that he had planned this attack. And as the judge found in her decision, you know, he had spent 10 years thinking about it. And she, she said, you know, he, he knew morally that it was wrong. And that day he could have decided against it, but he still decided to push the accelerator and do this. And, um, you know, the, she called it horrible and despicable. Um, she, she really, uh, you know, had disdain for what he did. And that's how we felt, those of us who covered this case uh, and who listened to the defense, uh, Dr. Westfall, the Yale University professor, saying that, oh, you know, he, he didn't have empathy and he, didn't, he didn't, couldn't really comprehend what he was doing. You know, the other psychiatrists who, who took the stand for the Crown uh, argued that he did know and that he viewed it as a, you know, he, he knew exactly what he was doing. And, uh, you know, and Malloy today even talked about how when he was asked, how do you feel about what you did? And he, you know, after, after he was arrested, he told D- Detective Thomas, I feel my mission was accomplished. Um, this is a man who, uh, as many of us felt, you know, he was preoccupied with the incel rebellion. He, he, he was angry towards women because he had been rejected. He considered himself an involuntary celibate, and he, he idolized uh, people like Elliot Rogers, and, and that's why he pressed that, he posted that, that uh, cryptic message that day. You know, and, that, and the judge said, in fact, he posted that half, after he had run down all those people. It, it really is uh, terrible, and, and the family of Anne-Marie D'Amico wants it to be recognized for what it is, which is, Misogyny. I, I see that the mayor has also put out a statement saying we have mm-hmm. to recognize this for what it is, which is hatred towards women. Eight of the ten victims were women. Uh, and, and also reading from uh, this uh, written uh, judgment from the justice, uh, he had a functioning, rational brain, one that perceived the reality of what he was doing, knew it was morally wrong. He then made a choice. And I think that is perhaps the key part of that in, in the absolute rejection of NCR. Yeah. And, and you know, I think Boris Patinsky thinks that we should, because she did acknowledge that ASD or autism spectrum disorder does constitute a mental disorder when it comes to the criminal code, uh, Boris Patinsky, I, I gather in his remarks, uh, which he made afterwards via, via Zoom, he said we have to look at the NCR defense more carefully in light of this argument. I mean, I, I, I think that Justice Malloy was quite clear in finding that he did have a rational mind. He did know what he was doing, and he did have the decision. You know, he really he knew that it was morally wrong. I don't think I, I don't know what Boris Patinsky says needs to be reviewed here. I think it's quite clear that um, you know, and this is a this is a victory for that community, the autism community that was so outraged by this defense. And she clearly, um, you know, said this was not something that that he didn't understand, and he did. Uh, I, I watched a, a portion of that uh, Zoom uh, conference with Boris Patinsky, and he was asked, I think the first question to him was, uh, do you plan an appeal? Uh, he did not answer, said he had not spoken to his client, wouldn't uh, wouldn't actually say in the media. Uh, that's one of the few, th- one of the things. The other thing is that he wouldn't actually comment on the decision itself other than to praise the thoroughness of the judge. What happens next in terms of sentencing? I'm speaking with Catherine McDonald, our uh, Global News crime reporter. Kath, what happens next? 
Well, as you as you said, there is going to be a sentencing hearing. I should say before I get to that, I think it is very interesting to note that not only did uh, you know Patinsky praise the first responders, so did the judge. She talked about uh, Ken Lamb, the constable that did that that takedown. Mm-hmm. Uh, she talked about Detective Rob Thomas, the the one that did the polygraph expert who did the interrogation. She talked about all the first responders. Uh, and all the Good Samaritans who tried to help those people who had been, uh, you know, run over by this out-of-control van. And, you know, so the sentencing is going to happen on uh, March 18th. That will be a sentencing hearing, at which time uh, we are going to hear arguments from the Crown uh, as to why they believe that, I- I'm guessing, they're going to be arguing for consecutive periods of parole ineligibility, which means that uh, because he was found guilty, uh, the perpetrator, of 10 counts of first-degree murder, uh, rather than only serving life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years, uh, the Crown could argue that he should serve 50 years without parole eligibility or 75 years. In fact, he could serve up to 250 years, and we saw this in the MacArthur case. Of course, the Crown argued MacArthur should uh, serve consecutive periods of parole ineligibility, meaning he can't apply for parole for 25 years or 50 years. In the case of MacArthur, he was only given 25 years because the judge said he would probably die in custody. In the case of Dellen Millard, another serial killer who killed his father, um, who killed the man that he, you know, found, that he met on Kijiji, he was given a 50-year uh, period of parole ineligibility, so consecutive parole ineligibility terms. Um, you know, this, this is really important because he's only 28 years old, and I, I think a lot of the victims and, and, and the families of the victims would like to know that he will never get out of jail. Um, or out of prison, pardon me. Uh, and so this this is important because of his age. And and I and that's and we're also going to hear victim impact statements. Always a very difficult thing. We've heard, as you heard today, from some of the families, but we're going to hear from some of the other victims and their families that we haven't heard as much from over the past three years. Uh, some of them, you know, were elderly and they only have uh, children and grandchildren who can speak for them. Uh, others, Kath, Kath, I just want to just because you're talking about that, I want to play this because I think yeah. this was. This really brought it home. This is Kathy Riddell outside of the courthouse. Uh, she uh, is one of those who was injured in the van attack. This is Kathy Riddell. Absolutely relieved. I'm grateful to the judge. I'm grateful to the prosecution. Um, I, I'm grateful to Jeff and Laya for making all this happen. And I probably will sleep tonight <laughs> for the first time in a while. Kathy Riddell saying that she will sleep tonight for the first time in a while. Kathy, there has to be relief for everyone there down at the courthouse today. Oh, yeah, there, there's, a, uh, there's a, a huge sense of relief. But I have to say, one of the things Anne Malloy, the judge, did in her judgment was she, she talked about the injuries um, from the, the 16 people who were named on the indictment. One of the, one of the women lo- had to have both legs amputated from the knees down. These are people that have you know, life-altering injuries, and for sure they have emotional scars that they will never heal from. And I think that's true for many of us in the city who either uh, live in that area, had to cover this terrible mass killing, or just had to, you know, just live here because it really took a toll on all of us. And, uh, you know, yes, there is relief knowing that hopefully Alec Manassian will never be freed from prison again. We just used the name there, and I, I don't want to call you out for it because I, I just want to have a quick discussion about what you, how you feel about what the, the justice did here in releasing a report or, or a ruling that then replaces uh, Mr. Manassian's name with John Doe. Well, I mean, the, the horse is out of the barn, and she said that. She said his name has already been all over the media. It's been widely reported. The problem is, is that 
um, you know, I, I do understand her argument, but in this case, it's, it's too late because it's been three years of naming him. That being said, uh, maybe it's a discussion going forward in future future cases, future trials. Um, you know, and so I, it is a it, it's an interesting uh, discussion, but I don't think in this case we can call him John Doe because we, we all know who he is. And um, in this case, it, it's not like it just happened and it's a week later and we could maybe put a publication ban on that. She couldn't do that. Legally, she can't do that. And she can't tell the media not to report his name. But but it does make sense. She explained that he sought infamy. She sought mm. notoriety. And, and he by naming him in the judgment, he would only be furthering it, further achieving that notoriety. Catherine McDonald, I know i got to let you go because you have to get going, and uh, we'll have your uh, full report on Global News at 5.30 tonight and continuing coverage all day long here on Global News Radio. Thanks, Kath. Thank you for having me. When we come back, I am going to be talking to a criminal defense lawyer. We're going to talk more about the NCR defense and how it was used in this case. If we need to look at NCR, uh, we are going to hear from the man himself at the center of this trial uh, and talk more about the impact. And and really, I think we, we have to ask ourselves a question is, how much societal pressure in terms of fame and acceptance should we really look at here? I mean, obviously this man is an outlier. You know, those that seek fame do it in a responsible way, many of them. But I think we have to ask ourselves a question about the way our society values notoriety of any kind. We're going to ask some questions about that. And then later on in the program, I am going to launch my single-issue platform campaign to be the next mayor of Toronto. I only have one issue. It's just a one-issue campaign. It's Rocky Raccoon. Welcome back to the program. Coming up in just a short while, my take on the Dr. Seuss situation. You may know the details. Six books from the Dr. Seuss catalog will no longer be published because of racist imagery contained within. And it's gotten people upset on both sides. My take on that coming straight up. But just a short while ago, outside of 361 University Avenue in Toronto... There was an extraordinary press conference where uh, victims of the van attack in Toronto spoke and reacted to the guilty verdict from the justice. All 10 counts of murder and also 16 counts of attempted murder. Uh, This is Kathy Riddell, who is a survivor of the van attack. He took lives and he didn't care. And you know what? You just have to be accountable for what you do. And he's going to have to be. He, of course, is Alec Manassian. From the decision from the judge, quote, he had a functioning, rational brain, one that perceived the reality of what he was doing. And he knew it was morally wrong by society standards and contrary to everything he had been taught about right and wrong. He then made a choice. And with that, the judge rejected the defense of not criminally responsible. For perspective, here is part of the interview 
conducted by Detective Rob Thomas of Alec Manassian. I was starting to feel radicalized at that time. You were, okay. And when you say radicalized, what do you mean by that? Meaning I felt it was time to take action and not just sit on the sidelines and to just uh, fester in my own sadness. That is Manassian talking about being radicalized, which led to the attack, which claimed 10 lives in Toronto. To talk more about the defense of not criminally responsible and get some better perspective of uh, the legal arguments entailed here, Lindsay Board is a criminal defense lawyer and joins me. Welcome. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me. Did the attempt by Boris Potensky, the criminal defense lawyer of NCR, did it have a chance from the outset in in your estimation? Well, it certainly seems like there was sufficient evidence in order to be able to advance this type of defense. And so we have to remember that part of what the trial judge found here is that autism spectrum disorder did qualify as a mental disorder for the purposes of being able to raise this defense at a criminal trial. But that's just part of the equation. So as we know, the trial judge ultimately found that he could not, he was not successful in raising that defense. Um, what what's the carry forward then from the judge uh, finding that this autism spectrum uh, would would be able to lead towards, if I understand what you're saying, NCR, although it didn't meet not meet the threshold in this case, is that precedent setting? So it's certainly possible that in the future people might try to rely on autism spectrum disorder to try and support a not criminally responsible verdict. But one thing that we have to remember is that it is exceptionally rare to raise a not criminally responsible defense. It's usually only raised in very extreme situations. And the reason for that is because if you're successful in arguing that defense, you don't go to jail, but you go to a psychiatric facility and you might possibly remain there for the rest of your life. And so it's a very significant decision in order to advance that defense. And it's usually only done in very exceptional circumstances. But it it, it raises such um, hackles amongst uh, the public because it... it you know, there's a lot of attention to it. And, and there is some perhaps some suggestion here that NCR uh, and the legislation, or I guess the it would be the, the rules surrounding it, might want to be amended. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, like I said, this is something that's certainly extremely rare. And I think there's sort of a misconception in the public that this is something, A, that happens all the time, and B, that it's some sort of get-out-of-jail-free card. But like I said, it's it's really rare that it is raised. And when it is successful, it's, it's certainly not um, a lenient situation. So our Canadian criminal law doesn't seek to punish people who don't have the mental capability to commit a criminal offense. And so those are people who are deserving and in need of mental health treatment. And so our criminal law doesn't seek to punish those people in those circumstances. So when a person is successful in raising that defense, they will be detained in a mental health facility where their care and treatment would be under constant supervision. And every few years, there would be a review to determine whether that person continues to pose a risk to public safety. Lindsay Board is a criminal defense lawyer with Daniel Brown Law. The next step is uh, sentencing 
in this particular case. Uh, obviously, NCR has been rejected, so the sentencing will be uh, at minimum 25 years before a chance of parole. But I guess the discussion here is about concurrence. Um, what's your estimation here? What, what's what's the move in terms of defense in making an application uh, to a sentencing hearing? Sure. So, Alan, this is really an incredibly tragic case. Hopefully the verdict brings some measure of closure to the the families of the victims. And as this proceeds to sentencing, the families will certainly have the opportunity to provide victim impact statements there. But regardless of that, the outcome will be the same. So, uh, as as you may know, guilt on a first-degree murder charge, it carries a mandatory life sentence without eligibility for parole for 25 years. But what your reference to uh, what you were saying, concurrent sentences. So the Crown attorney has the option to apply for what's called consecutive parole ineligibility, meaning Mr. Manassian would not be eligible for parole for potentially up to 250 years, which reflects 25 years for each of the 10 victims. Hmm. So so just in terms of just language, it's consecutive, not concurrent, just to make sure I have it right? That's correct. So if the Crown Attorney applied for that determination, it means that there would be 25 years of parole ineligibility for each of the 10 victims. How unlikely or or how unusual is that? In our last segment, uh, Catherine McDonald, our crime reporter, pointed to a couple of recent uh, big cases uh, in Ontario where that had been applied. So if the Crown Attorney was successful, that would be the most significant sentence in Canadian history. This new uh, consecutive parole ineligibility regime, that's relatively new law. So that's something that was actually introduced just in 2011. So there's not a lot of examples where that's been done. One other recent example is the Quebec City mosque shooting. So after that, he was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences. But actually, just recently, the Quebec Court of Appeal said that the consecutive parole ineligibility law was unconstitutional, meaning that he reverted back to just the 25 years before being able to apply for parole. Hmm. So a, a lot to take into account here for this uh, judge's uh, looking at sentencing. Lindsay Bort, thank you so much. I really appreciate your perspective. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, that is Lindsay Bort, who's a criminal defense lawyer with her perspective and uh, some uh, good information there. She's with uh, Daniel Brown Law. Rocky Raccoon checked into his room to find Gideon's Bible Rocky had come equipped with a gun to shoot off the legs of his rival His rival it seems had broken his dream Paul McCartney I blame you You're part of the problem You're part of the problem uh, what else is part of the problem? Porter Airlines, part of the problem. The raccoons on the CBC. CBC, you're part of the problem. All of you. All of you, I see you. You're part of the problem. We've been cutifying raccoons for too long. And now what has happened? How about this report? Between January of 2020 and February of 2021, Toronto Public Health saw a 62% increase in reports of people bitten or scratched by raccoons compared to the two-year average between the years 2018-2019.
They're not our friends. They are not cute mascots. They are the enemies of these of the people. And what is the reaction? I love the reaction to when this report comes out. Uh, in a number of quarters, the reaction was, well, we're just home more, and we're just in their space, and it's just stay away because, you know, they have every right to be. They are vermin. We're talking vermin here. Spread disease. And this is where... I make a joke. I make jokes about running for the mayorship. But I tell you, I tell you what, if I was, if I was ever inclined to run, what I would do is I would say, I am going to be your next mayor, and I only have one issue, one issue, and that is I'm going to clean up this raccoon problem. The gloves come off. And you know what? I for if if stop the gravy can get somebody elected, that thing, I'm telling you, dealing with raccoons, that'll put me right in the mayor's chair in a heartbeat. Brad Gates, Triple A Gates Wildlife Control is on the line. Brad, what's happened with the raccoons in the last year? Hello, Alan. I think they're fed up the length of the time this pandemic's been going on, so they're fighting back. <laughs> they're actually this, this is the humans. They're our enemy. I'm telling you, this is not even you know, this is not funny. This is not a cute YouTube video of a raccoon snatching a donut through the roof. This is this is serious. They're coming for us. <laughs> well, it's not in their nature to be aggressive towards humans. I mean, I, I climb in attics, I take their babies away from them, and they still head the other way. They're they're not coming at me. The odd one might be a little bit aggressive, but Now, they're not going after people to hurt them. What's going on with raccoons right now in the city is they have their own local pandemic going on. There's a disease that affects them called feline distemper. Uh Uh-oh. And when they get this disease, and it's record numbers right now, the mild winter has contributed to that because they're out and about and their face-to-face contact can transmit it from one animal to another. So what is happening is when they get in someone's backyard and they have this disease, over time, their eyes crust over so they can't see very well, and they will stagger, and they kind of lose their fear of humans. And what I understand is there's just so many calls going to the city to respond to these type of situations, and the city is has a huge backlog of calls. So they're not getting to people two, sometimes two or three days later after the call. Hmm. So homeowners are taking it upon themselves to go out and help these animals. Help them. It's not a great idea because you no. should never approach a wild animal. No. And they're, and they're putting their hands in places where they shouldn't, and they're getting bit and scratched. But it's not the raccoon attacking them. It's just just close contact that's causing these injuries. Well, what happens if you get scratched or bitten by a raccoon that's got female distemper? It's, it's actually feline. It's feline? <laughs> female. Sorry. Feline cat, it's cat, it's cat distemper. It's quite, oh, okay. Um, yeah. n- nothing. It, it's nothing. not transferable from, from raccoon to humans. But anytime someone gets bit or scratched by an animal, they need to seek medical attention because although rabies is low in the province, um, you still have to look upon the possibility that that animal may be carrying rabies. Okay, I'm just going to ask uh, people not to at me for saying female distemper. Don't, <laughs> don't cancel me for that, please. Uh, speaking with Brad Gates, it's feline. <laughs> Distemper. Thank you, Brad. Speaking of Brad Gates from AAA Gates Wildlife Control, uh, what what is to be done with the raccoons? 
Um, nothing really. I mean, what do we, well, hold on. What do you, What do you mean nothing? We got we got an increase in bites. We got. I'm telling you, as a homeowner, you know, I, I think I think for a lot of people in the city of Toronto, you know, if you own a home, if you live in in a treed neighborhood, you might not think they're so cute. True, but they're here to stay. Um, mm. They're very opportunistic. They adapt to city living and eat. There's been studies where um, organizations have reduced the population even by 60% in some cases, only to have the population rebound higher than it was before they even considered reducing it. So really what, what we've done as a city by containing our, our food waste has been a, a great step forward and it will naturally bring down the numbers over time. But as homeowners, they should take measures to button down their house, screen the roof fence, screen the chimneys, any vulnerable areas on the roof should be protected. So prevention is really the best policy when you're living in the city of Toronto. I, I, get, the, I get the feeling, Brad, that you would not vote for me if I ran for mayor. <laughs> no, not, not if you're with... going to hurt the raccoons, I would not. No, you would not. <laughs> uh, well, what if what what if we threw you a bone? I mean, we could get you a uh, you know city contract to deal with the raccoons. Well, I'm I'm dealing with them one resident at a time now. We <laughs> we get the calls to take them out of their attics and make sure they can't get back in. <laughs> but they always do. Like you you made a great point there that any kind of uh, mitigation effort doesn't seem to work in any long term. I, I guess your point being that these these new green bins, and I, I will and will admit that uh, the number of problems I, I have not had to clean up trash since I got the new green bin. It's been a great a great thing. Sure, and I mean wildlife populations boom because of the abundance of food and the abundance of shelter. So you start to limit one or both of those, you will naturally bring the population down to a more manageable level. Brad, thank you so much. Even though you're not going to vote for me, I do appreciate coming on the program and talking with me today. Thanks again. You're very welcome. That is Brad Gates with AAA Gates Wildlife Control. I'm sure he would appreciate a call if you have a raccoon problem. Do recall, do remember, don't go near the raccoons. Don't, if even if they're wobbly, don't go over there. Sheba Siddiqui is my producer. Sheba, we learned a lot of things here on this last hour. What do you make of that? Do you think I'm offside? Am I going to get canceled for suggesting that we get tough with raccoons? I definitely don't think you're going to be uh, you're going to be mayor anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, that's well, I think that's not a newsflash to anybody. No one's voting for Alan Carter. Well, but even even on the strength of that uh, of that campaign promise, I I know people. I <laughs> when I say these sort of things, like Jason Chapman, our executive producer, he says, "Yeah, a hundred percent, I'll vote for you. I'll vote for you on that." <laughs> you know, and I know that I listen. He's I know lying. He's lying. They're all lying to you, Alan Carter. They are lying. The, you know, up and down my street, I know I could get a couple of votes. Look, I'm going to deal with the raccoons. You've got my vote. Nobody will put a sign up for me. They'll just silently, just secretly vote for me. Okay, let's go with that. <laughs> I will vote for Are you, you. You're horrified. You're horrified by this. <laughs> I'm surprised that you're just you're not supposed to really do anything about the raccoons. But I do agree with you that there has been a huge change since the new uh, green bins have come mm. in. Or the green, uh, the compost bits. The green, yeah, that's been a, that's been a real bonus. It has, it has helped things a lot. In our last segment, uh, I gave my opinion on the Dr. Seuss 
situation continues to be the number one story on globalnews.ca, the fact that six Dr. Seuss books will no longer be published because of racist imagery contained within Shiba Siddiqui. Your thoughts? You know what? 12 years ago, when I gave birth to my firstborn, I was gifted a big set of Dr. Seuss books. Mm. Uh, and first of all, who calls it Dr. Seuss? What's going on with that, Alan Carter? I, I'm trying to. Uh, so, I'm Dr. On Seuss. It. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard that before. Dr. Seuss, my kids have grown up with One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish, Green Eggs and Ham, the Lorax, mm. uh, and they love it. And most love of them it. have learned to read through his ABC book. So I was really surprised that this, I mean, there are some things that, yes, you do have to change with the times, and there are some inappropriate things, but nothing like what I've read in these other books that have come forward, these six books that are being banned. I don't have any of them. I've never read any of them, and they are not, I think, in his top 10 or his most popular no. books. Uh, and it's pretty racist. So I think I, I agree. I agree with it being banned. I mean, let's not cancel Dr. Seuss. But these books have got to go. I mean, where where their eyes where their eyes at a slant, a Chinaman who eats with sticks. Yeah. No, you can't say yeah, those things. Defensive. You should have never been able to say those things. You can't. No, absolutely not. Those have to go. I. Can't. You know, somewhat predictably in post media, I think it was a post media editorial, like, "Well, the the woke left are coming for the doctor." I just I don't buy that. I don't buy it at all. No, I think there are some wonderful things that have come out of Dr. Seuss' books. The vocabulary, the reading, the alphabet, the learning, even most of the imagery. It's just really creative. My kids have loved it. They've grown up on it. I'm all for it. But some of those books have to go. Some of the imagery has to go. I know there's a there's a 2014 scholarly work that says that the cat in the hat is, an, is a mockery of black people. I've read that before, uh, mm. although... This is not being canceled. The Cat in the Hat is not one of the books being canceled. It's still going to be published, but the organization said it is committed to, and I hate this term, it is committed to listening and learning, hmm. which I feel like that was the theme of last summer. Everybody is now listening and learning, and I'm just so over it. Stop listening. You, stop you, learning. You, you, you Change like your ways. This. Do something about it. You don't want any, no, no more listening, no more learning. No, no more listening and learning. That's the biggest <laughs> crock I've heard. Come gonna... on, especially during the Black Lives Matter movement. It's just, it irks me when people say that. It's just, it's extremely condescending. Oh, it's, you just it, think it's, like it's performative. When you, it's performative when you say that. You just would say, it's just a way to 100%, say One hundred percent. One hundred. I feel like it's just calming the masses. And I hate, I, I hate that term, listening and learning. I think most people of color would agree with that. Hmm. Well, that's great perspective. Sheba, thank you so much. Appreciate uh, uh, We learned a lot of things today on the radio program, I hope. Uh, we learned that uh, I will never be mayor. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget the Alan Carter Show weekdays at noon.